Bank stocks might look like dicey propositions these days. There's nothing to focus investors' minds like the possibility of a run on the banks. It's not 2008, though, and we probably won't see the failure of hundreds of banks like we did back then. Federal News Network's Tom Temin got more from certified investment planner Art Stein. Art, actually, before we get to the whole banking question and what investors should be worried about right now, which seems to be about everything, I wanted to ask you, here we are with a quarter of the calendar 2023 behind us, maybe review some of the returns in the TSP funds and the markets generally so far. Yeah, well, the returns have been very good so far this year and year to date, which means, you know, from the beginning of the year through yesterday, all the funds are up. The G fund's up 0.8%, F fund's up 2%, C fund a little less than 4 S fund 2%, I fund 3%, and the L income fund is up 1.5%. So it's been a very good year. Now, since this problem happened with the Silicon Valley Bank, which really was March 9th and 10th, then we see that the stock funds are actually down. But taking that into account, since the beginning of the year, the stock funds are still up and, you know, had a good quarter. So what's an investor going to do? To begin with, they need to look at, you know, what do they actually have at risk? And, of course, government employees and retirees have this great set of guarantees that no one else has, and they really don't need to worry as much. I mean, if you're a federal employee... It's not like you work in the private sector, like we've been reading how even major companies like Amazon and Google, et cetera, have been laying off thousands of employees. Well, the government doesn't work that way. And actually, you know, if you have a bank run, there are a lot of government people that will be working much harder. Federal retirees, again, are in a much better situation. They have a federal annuity that's guaranteed. That's their pension. And FERS retirees also have Social Security, which is actually guaranteed. Both of those have cost of living adjustments. You know, they've got their health insurance. So they should be in a much more secure situation. Now, in terms of their actual investments, for the C and the S fund, which are the stock funds, how much do they own of the banks that have been affected so far? So Of the banks that have been affected so far, the Silicon Valley Bank was in the S fund, as was First Republic, I guess, at the end of 2022. But I think that they were switched to the S&P 500 index, not by the TSP, but by the people that run these indexes. You know, it's not a TSP decision. They're just using indexes and those investments are managed by BlackRock and some other companies. So there's no immediate concern. Now, if we had massive bank runs in the United States, you know, that's obviously going to kill the stock market. And I'm not quite sure what it's going to do to the bond market because there might be a flight to safety and bonds might look good to a lot of investors. But I don't see that happening because, one, Silicon Valley Bank was a really unusual situation. They clearly didn't manage their investments very well. And it didn't match up with their liabilities. There are a few other problems. But even they could have survived if there hadn't been what we call a bank run. And a bank run is when people just start pulling their money out of the bank, even though they may not have to. Silicon Valley Bank, such a large percentage of their 
deposits were not insured. And that's not true of most other banks. I've read that as much as 90% of the value of the deposits in Silicon Valley Bank were not insured because they were over the FDIC limit. In a typical bank, that's closer to 20 or 30%. We're speaking with certified financial planner Art Stein. So the question is, getting back to, say, some of the TSP funds that might have had these in them as part of the you know, index funds, if they are such a small percentage of these index funds, what's the mechanism by which something occurring at Silicon Valley Bank and a couple of the others, European banks, affect the stock market so much? Well, because, one, they are part of the stock market. You know, clearly their stock values have gone down. So to the extent that those bank stocks are held by the C and the S fund, there's one effect. But also, you know, these type of bank failures are seen as bad for the economy. So people tend to sell stocks when they happen. And that affects the entire stock market. And do you sense that there's maybe a almost an underlying anxiety these days because people are looking at Social Security, seeing the Congress's refusal to even consider anything substantive to try to extend the solvency of that fund, of the, of the Social Security? And the same thing is true of Medicare, really, for that matter, is also unsustainable. And if you look at the trends in health care spending by the federal government, and then you look at interest rates, And then we hear all these warnings about how much of the federal budget will have to be devoted to paying the service on the national debt. And you add that all up, it's almost like the couple of bank failures are the straw that's breaking the camel's back in a lot of people's minds. I think it's way too soon to talk about breaking the camel's back. And remember, with Medicare and Social Security, the government can just print the money to pay the bills. And everybody expects that. I expect that. I don't think any senator or congressman is really going to let those programs go bankrupt. They're not going to want to be around if they were part of voting against the money needed to continue those payments. I mean, there are just way too many people dependent upon that. But if the government is just printing more and more money to pay those and they haven't made any other reforms, you know, you expect that to be inflationary. And, you know, we've seen inflation go up a lot. And then the question you would want to ask is, well, if we expect inflation to remain high, you know, because of the deficits in the Social Security Trust Fund and the Medicare Trust Fund and things like that, how does that affect our investment strategy for long-term and short-term investors? And high inflation reduces the purchasing power of the bond funds, F and G, And long term, you would expect it to increase the value of stocks because companies can charge more. And historically, when inflation has hit, you know, long term stock prices and dividends have adjusted. Right. So you've got this situation then, I guess what I meant when I said the straw breaking the camel's back, I meant from an investor flight or sell standpoint, not from the government going to collapse. But people see the trends and they see the size of the debt relative to GDP, and it's going to be bigger than GDP in a short while. I think at some point that dawns on people that, yes, it can print money, but is that what we want the nation to be doing in perpetuity, is printing money at the levels it has been for, say, the past five years? You know, Tom, I think that, you know, individual investors, what they need to do is to have clear and appropriate investment goals. 
to have a suitable allocation between the stock and the bond funds and for their outside investments between stock investments and bond investments. And then they just need to maintain perspective and a long-term view and long-term discipline. And that, to me, you know, as an investment manager means when stock prices go way down, we buy more. And if bond prices go way down, we buy more bond funds. You know, you want to be a little counter-cyclical. And historically, that would have given you a much higher rate of return. And for anybody trying to understand these things and then to invest accordingly, it's very important to understand the difference between stocks and bonds and how that affects your investments. But if you really want to get into it, then you need to understand things that, you know, only really sophisticated bond traders do. I think that people should look at the historic returns and really what that means historically is that stock funds over long periods of time outperform the bond funds by a significant amount. And that difference was high enough to make putting up with a greater volatility of the stock funds worthwhile because they, you know, they tended to have a much higher rate of return. Not every year maybe not every five years, and in a few cases, not even every 10 years. But the bond funds, very unlikely to maintain purchasing power after we take into account taxes and inflation. So if you're putting your, you know, long-term money in something that's losing purchasing power, that's a problem. So now is not the time to lose your nerve. Well, I don't think it's ever a time to lose your nerve, but I would say have an appropriate investment goal. If you're retired and you need money in the short term from your investments, it should be invested in bank accounts and short-term bond funds. For the money that you're going to need in 10, 20, and 30 years, you need to have that heavily weighted towards the stock funds. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. David Wilson, president of Morgan State University. David has had a fascinating career and has garnered a long record of accomplishments from more than 30 years of experience in higher education administration. Came to Morgan State in 2010 from the University of Wisconsin, where he was chancellor of both the University of Wisconsin Colleges and the University of Wisconsin Extension. Before that, he held numerous other administrative posts in academia, including vice president for the University of Outreach, associate provost at Auburn University, and um, associate provost of Rutgers. And when we were talking earlier, too, you had just mentioned that you had a, um, a wonderful nomination at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And David, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Shane, it is indeed a pleasure uh, to be invited into this conversation with you. It's not in your um, in the short bio here, but I also know you served in some capacity in the Obama administration. Yes, I did. As a matter of fact, as I was leaving the University of Wisconsin, where I oversaw the UW colleges, I accepted the presidency at Morgan. And on my way into the presidency at Morgan in 2010, my name was advanced to President Obama to be considered as a member of his board of advisors on historically black colleges and universities. And so I accepted and served there for eight years during his two terms. Amazing. You've had a fascinating career at numerous universities across the U.S. How did you become passionate about the education field? And what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? First of all, 
I was made aware of a quote by Horace Mann, who was great 19th century educator who really gave rise to public education in the United States. And he was the first to utter the phrase that education is the great equalizer. And why that resonated with me was because I grew up in abject poverty uh, in rural Alabama, and there was no law in Alabama as I was growing up that required black kids to go to school. I was kind of shut off from formal education on a consistent basis. I didn't get a chance to go to school full time until I was in the seventh grade. We lived on property there that were owned by um, the white landowners. And so the um, owner of the property, a white woman, would bring down to this little shanty that we lived in. She would bring Look and Life magazines. My mom, uh, she would make us as children plaster these pages of Look and Life magazines against the wall of this little shanty to keep the cold wind out. I would take a kerosene lamp and go around the walls reading those articles in Look and Life magazines, which is when I first came across the phrase of Horace Mann. Hmm. From that point on, I committed myself you know, to education. It's an amazing story, and two things occur to me. One, it's almost incomprehensible that this happened during our lifetime. You know, that to me is uh, almost shocking. It's also truly inspiring that you recognized that you could do more and sought out to do that and were successful at it. So when you think back on that experience, how has that informed, shaped, influenced your leadership position now as president of Morgan State? It, it had to have had an impact, but how would you articulate that? So if you go back to that Alabama environment, what I saw, it was just so many people, my own brothers and sisters who were 10 times smarter than I was. But my first five brothers were literate. They never got an opportunity to show the nation how brilliant they were. Therefore, I really took on this whole notion that my life had to be about ensuring that individuals who were drowning in potential and they didn't realize it would be in a position where they would realize it. I was never ever about positions that would enable me simply to replicate privilege. I don't care where you went to school. I don't care what type of family you came from. I think that's where sometimes we kind of get education wrong. Uh, We have institutions that want to define themselves uh, based on how many students they don't admit. I'm about just the opposite, taking individuals who are absolutely stellar and don't realize it and bringing that into existence for them. You've had so many opportunities that you could do other things, perhaps, at um, larger organizations. But you're where you want to be on purpose, by design, for the kinds of reasons you just talked about, that it's, it's fulfilling. But can you talk a little bit more about that? There have been so many so-called top 50 institutions in the United States that have come aggressively after me. And you know, I flirted with a couple of them, and I went home to Alabama because these two were very serious. And my family is brutally honest with me, and they keep me grounded. So I flew down and began to talk with them about these institutions that were coming after me. I was thinking they would be 
impressed. And when I finished, my youngest sister said to me, now, are you finished? Clearly, we are not understanding why you would even consider leaving Morgan. It just reassured me that I'm living my purpose at Morgan. And it is joyful uh, to be at a place where you want to be versus being at a place where others think you should be. One question that I always have to ask, is there one leader or maybe a couple of leaders that have inspired you that have You mentioned Horace Mann. I don't know if if that fits in this category, but what might be a couple of leaders that you remember that that inspired you, that gave you purpose, helped shape your life? In 1989, when I was selected as a W.K. Kellogg Fellow, we had to be introduced to leadership that was different in a lot of ways than the leadership that we had been exposed to. In February of 1990, uh, Mr. Nelson Mandela was released And that's where I wanted to go and meet Mr. Mandela. We had no idea that he would grant an audience, and he did. He granted an audience, and uh, Mr. Walter Sisulu did as well. So here I am, having grown up in Alabama, I harbored some anger toward the society there that kept me from realizing my potential and then kept so many others like me from ever realizing their potential. At the end of a conversation that we had, someone asked Mr. Sosulu, we're leaving this conversation thinking that you harbor no anger towards a society that locked you away for 27 years. Are we leaving with the correct conclusion? He said, I harbored no anger or bitterness towards a society that locked me away for all of those years because I and others like me knew that what we were doing was the right thing. If you commit yourself to doing the right thing, there should never, ever be any space in your heart for anger or bitterness. And that was transformational for me and why I respect and admire Mr. Nelson Mandela and Mr. Walter Sisulu today. That is a great story. And it, you know, with all the accomplishments through your life, I'm sure it had a great impact on your ability to, to go as far as you have and you're still going. Well, uh, I I have a takeaway in in terms of leadership lessons I've learned. We would be well-served as a nation if I think we created these opportunities for young people at various stages to really, first of all, see the United States. And then we need that same opportunity globally. As a result, when you do that, you understand the history over here. You understand the culture over here. You understand, and you got to understand the world beyond an intellectual understanding. You want to think of your maturation in a way where your brain can never, ever, ever be hacked. <laughs> so that's sort of the way, that's sort of I, the I way that I kind of see all of that. You that's know? brilliant. <laughs> and um, being born in rural southwest uh, Kansas, flyover country, as they say, I can, I can tell you that your, your comments about travel and getting out, not just reading about it, but actually traveling, it, it really is important. It's absolutely critical for someone's personal development. I, I, I happen to think so. Well, Dr. <laughs> David Wilson, thank you so much. I love every single piece of today, but also your life story. It's really impressive, inspiring, and thank you for sharing it. Shane, today. thank you very much for inviting me to have this conversation with you again. And I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. We'll see you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.